Welcome to Crop Sense, presented by North Carolina Cooperative Extension. I'm Jacob Morgan, a field crops agent with North Carolina Cooperative Extension. Today we have Dr. Matthew Van to discuss tobacco transplanting. Good morning, Dr. Van. Welcome back. Hey, Jacob. Thanks for having me on today. So to start off, could you give us a quick overview of kind of how the greenhouse season went this spring? Sure. So in general, our greenhouse season started very well. We usually anticipate that a lot of our growers in eastern North Carolina will begin to seed greenhouses, you know, maybe as early as the first week of February, but certainly we see most of our seeding having taken place by by the middle of February. And some of those timelines even trickled into areas west of Raleigh out in the Piedmont. We had really good warm, sunny days for most of February. Our air temperature was largely above normal, very little rainfall, so we didn't have any of these prolonged cloudy spells, and I think that our growers across the state tried to take advantage of that, you know, burning less fuel to keep the greenhouses warm and, you know, good sunny days to really push germination. So we came out at the gate very strong, had a, a just good germination season, really just good conditions at the very beginning. Here now that we're towards the end of the greenhouse season, you know, this is something that that I'm never surprised by, but it always seems to come on all at once. But we've seen, I would say, a fair amount of disease beginning to show up. Nothing that I think is terribly surprising at this moment. Some of the usual suspects, we're seeing some pythium root rot, some black root rot, a little bit of collar rot, and even uh, some places with some bacterial soft rot. So again, none of that is is terribly surprising. We can also add a little bit of rhizoctonia in the form of target spot into that conversation. I think as a whole, as we look now, you know, towards transplanting season and and getting to field production, I do have, I don't know that I want to use the word concern, but I think growers and, and county agents, as we're thinking about planning decisions and management strategies, I don't really know that we're going to have an overabundance of tobacco transplants that are going to be available. So, you know, I I certainly implore growers and and everyone involved in the industry to really think about some of the things they're doing, you know, because if we do have some big replant decisions that need to be made, I think we may have a hard time scraping up enough transplants to make that happen if we have some widespread events. So my impression, you know, going into the greenhouse season is that we we basically seeded exactly what we needed, Uh, didn't really see a lot of extra seedlings floating around, and I think that's the situation we're in. I've had quite a few phone calls with farmers and county agents that are looking for extra plants and they're just really hard to come by right now. Inevitably, that situation probably will alleviate to a small degree uh, once we get more of this crop transplanted. One of the latest USDA reports had us at about 24% transplanted as of earlier this week. So growers get in the field and get things established inevitably there'll be some seedlings that come back uh, onto the market, but I don't expect it to be a, you know, a massive surplus that'll be out there. I know we've had kind of some, some weird weather throughout March and April so far, but I'd say tobacco transplanting is going pretty much full speed ahead at this point or will be in the next week or so. So can you discuss best practices for getting quality plants out of the greenhouse and into the ground? Sure. One of the things I always think about, and it's too late to even do anything about this, but the first the first piece comes with choosing a seeding date. And, you know, I, I always reference about 60 days for us to go to grow a field ready transplant. But when we start to get beyond that 60 days and we're trying to keep plants in the house, you know, waiting on environmental conditions to improve to get those plants in the field, 
We're clipping aggressively. We're really creating an environment where you've got the potential for high disease pressure with all of that vegetation in the greenhouse and all of that wounding injury from our mowers. So again, I kind of go back to that. Again, it's too late to really do anything about that. So, you know, at this point, it's just, you know, making sure that we've got good plants that are healthy and disease free. And as I said before, we've seen a little bit of of some of our stem rot diseases, uh, again, bacterial soft rot, some collar rot, a few cases of some rhizoctonia stem rot, which can develop into sorcian. So I would really focus in this particular topic of growers being sure that when they're getting trays out of the greenhouse, just doing a quick visual inspection to make sure that, that they don't have some of these things that are showing up in their very early stages that'll then lead to you know, some possibility for reduced plant stands or failed plant stands, again, once they get into the field. So I think just quality control right now, making sure you've got a good vigorous plant that's going to the field. I think one of the benefits we've got right now is that it's a little bit cooler. We probably have fairly good soil moisture in most places that are setting tobacco right now. That's a big contrast to, you know, what we had a few weeks ago, uh, what we had a month ago, and again, a bigger contrast to our transplanting seasons in 2022 and 2021, where it was just really dry. It was unseasonably warm. We had a lot of wind blowing around, had a lot of sand blasting. So again, I think when you've got some of these more moderate conditions, those plants kind of get through the transplant shock phase a little bit more. Uh, so again, I think that's something that can be to our advantage, but we got to make sure we've got healthy plants, you know, that are going to the field and don't have diseases that are going with them. So that'd be, you know, my general kind of 50,000 foot view for thinking about quality transplants right now. So when we talk about transplanting tobacco, transplant water is always a big discussion among growers. What are your recommendations for transplant water? This is always one of the more complex questions because there's a lot of products that are being promoted to go into transplant water. And based off a lot of our conversations that we've had at, at extension events, I think growers really need to think on a farm by farm or even field by field basis of what they need. Under the conditions we've got right now, and I've you know been looking at the weather app on my phone, we're again, we're in some moderate conditions where our soil temperatures probably, you know, not getting incredibly warm. We're probably seeing some heat loss, probably a substantial amount of heat loss in the soil during the night. And those conditions where we've got a little bit of moisture to go with it, there could be an advantage to putting a small amount of starter fertilizer uh, in transplant water. And all of that revolves around the fact, you know, going back to some plant physiology associated with tobacco, we know that that it's really not until we get soil and air temperature above 65 degrees at night, it's not until then that we really start to see tobacco take root and really put on a lot of vegetation uh, in a short amount of time. So really helping those plants get established, we can get, a, we can get some of that help from a small amount of phosphorus, and we, we reference five pounds of phosphorus. Uh, in transplant water, uh, we've got a large number of growers that do that. There's a variety of products that are available. So again, that's something that I think we're kind of on the fence with. I've not been really keen on that treatment over the last two growing seasons where it was so dry and so warm. We know from field trials we had in the last couple of seasons, there was really no plant growth advantage to having uh, phosphorus in the transplant water in those scenarios. But we've got some borderline places right now where there could be an advantage. The other products I think about are really more focused on disease management. So thinking about, you know, one of our black shank fungicides, uh, be it our, our Rondus products or our Ritamil products or some of the generics that'll give us some early season 
uh, protection from black shank. And then thinking a little bit further down the line about tomato spotted wilt virus management. You know, I said at our county meetings this past winter that our best treatment hands down for spotted wilt virus management is going to be a greenhouse application uh, of one of our systemic insecticides. But we've got situations where growers may not be comfortable with that or they may be in low tomato spotted wilt virus pressure areas. Uh, so a transplant water application of one of those systemic insecticides is, is probably another good option. Again, it affords you a little bit of spotted wilt virus protection. You get some early season flea beetle control. So again, those would be probably the big three, thinking about maybe a fertilizer uh, when we've got some of these cooler damp soils, maybe a black shank fungicide, and then maybe a um, you know systemic insecticide. But that's really about it for right now. So you mentioned starter fertilizer in the transplant water. Over the winter, we had some dry weather. We've been getting some rain the last two or three months. So what should a fertilizer program look like at this point in the season? So, Jacob, you know, my vantage point on that particular question, again, you probably have some some situations where we could kind of deviate and get in the weeds a little bit. But, you know, if a grower chooses to use a starter fertilizer, I certainly wouldn't get heavy handed with it. Again, I kind of put a cap on things at about five pounds of phosphorus per acre. But when it goes to a, a little bit bigger picture and we start talking about nitrogen management, potassium and, and you know, other nutrients, the bulk of that, or really all of all of those nutrients we're getting from our soil applied fertilizers, be it a, an ammoniated granular product, custom blended product, or some liquid materials that we see growers use. I think the bigger point there is we've got a lot of things that growers have access to that work fairly well that that can be cost effective. But for me, the bigger piece of that is really the timeliness of when they're putting out their first sort of base application of fertilizer. You know, we've got some variances in when growers like to do that. We've got different aspects of applied field research where we've looked at different application programs. And I generally like for the first application of fertilizer to go down within about a week after transplanting. You know, we've got some growers that are set up to transplant and apply fertilizer simultaneously. We've got some that come by, come behind the transplanter and are making side dress applications. And I've generally found that the timeliness piece of just getting that first kind of shot of fertilizer out as a base application as soon as it can, oftentimes is, is going to be advantageous. I don't have a problem waiting, you know, seven to 10 days, but right now with the way we've had some, some weather patterns, at least here in the triangle, it looks like we've been getting rain about every seven or 10 days. So if a grower plants the crop and they want to come back a week later and fertilize with just the way these, these uh, systems have been trending, you may not be able to do that. So you got to, you know, let the system get through, you got to let the field dry out, and then you may be two weeks or a little bit more before you can really get back in that field and, and get a base fertilizer down. And I think at that point, some of those plants just may be starting to run out of gas to some degree. So again, I like the the earlier application just to help get those plants kind of kick-started and moving along. What are your uh, opinions or thoughts on plowing and maybe a strategy as far as that goes? So that's another thing that I spent a little bit of time talking about this winter was thinking a little bit more holistically about secondary cultivation. We do a good job, I think, when weather permits of being timely with plowing and those kind of things and then, you know, fertilizer applications and and all those things we can do simultaneously. But looking backwards at some of our situations where we've had some really bad black shank or granville wilt show up, there's times where I think we've had growers that have just plowed tobacco a, a little bit too late in the year. 
that lay by plowing it varies from one year to the next it may be it may be four or five weeks after transplanting this year and then next year it may be six or seven weeks after transplanting but i think if we can sort of quote unquote lay the crop by you know maybe a week or 10 days earlier than normal I think that's really going to help us with some of our soil-borne disease problems, some of our nematode pressure that we've seen, because, you know, we're using some tillage equipment that I don't really think we used 20 or 30 years ago. Some of this tillage equipment does a really nice job with bed shaping and putting, putting a really clean soil out in front of us. But with that amount of soil we're moving and that amount of tillage, it's just inevitable that we're going to have some root pruning and mechanical damage that's going to follow that. And I have worried that in recent years, you know, that we've seen some of that mechanical damage and that has really set us up to have some black shank and gramble wilt problems that show up a few weeks later. So again, I think if we can back off of that lay-by plowing, if at all possible, by again, maybe a week or 10 days, inevitably there's got to be less root damage. And again, that's going to help us in the long term with disease management water use efficiency, nutrient uptake, and, you know, yield, holding ability, all those kind of things. What about any insect or disease issues we should look out for? Ooh. So right now, the number one insect slash disease problem on my radar is tomato spotted wilt virus. And, and you know, Jacob, I think that's one that's probably near and dear to your heart being in Jones County. I have worried that Given the lack of cold weather and the low rainfall we had, you know, really in December, January, and February, that we probably didn't get the natural suppression of of the thrips in the wild weed populations to try to help slow down the vectoring of, of tomato spotted wilt virus. You know, conditions obviously changed as we got into March. We got into some cooler weather, a little more consistent rainfall. April's been very cool and very wet. So that goes in our favor. But that's one that's really in the back of my mind. And and a lot of it stems from what problems we had last year. I mentioned this before. We we had about 18% stand losses in non-treated plots uh, down at our Cunningham Research Station in Lenore County last year. And you know, for us to say we had an 18% stand loss to tomato spotted wilt virus, that's an alarming number. And frankly, that's not a sustainable scenario for our growers to be in. So, you know, again, moving forward, we've we've had some of the rainfall, we've had some cooler weather. I've looked at some of our thrips flight models and some of the predictor tools that we have through NC State Extension. And I think as a whole, those models are not predicting you know, a large increase in tomato spotted wilt virus frequency at some of our locations. I think some of the, some of the increases I've seen, maybe two, three, four, five percent relative to last year, if you had a 10% stand loss and now the model's at 13 or 14%, that's, that's going in the wrong direction. To go with that, using some of the cotton prediction tools, you know, we've, we specifically focus on the third generation thrips flight And, you know, just before uh, we started this conversation today, I looked at the predictor tool for the third generation thrips flight uh, down in Jones County. And and lo and behold, we're right in the middle of it right now. So, again, knowing that there may be a, a slightly earlier flight in some places relative to years past, maybe a small increase in in estimated severity, uh, growers need to be thinking about that. And, you know, as we dig a little bit deeper, the thing we often reference with tomato spotted wilt virus is that once that transplanter leaves the field, 
a grower's done all they, they can practically do to try to mitigate losses associated with spotted wilt virus. So that comes down to, again, a greenhouse application of a systemic insecticide or as a second option, a transplant water application. So again, we've really tried to provide some educational tools and tips to try to help mitigate spotted wilt virus losses. And, you know, unfortunately, it's one of these situations where, you know, time's going to tell how effective these decisions are. And, you know, it's, the, it's decisions around planting date, chemical treatments, you know, all, all those kind of things. And, you know, it's a pretty complex question, but that's the first one that I'm, I'm really thinking about because there's, again, there's nothing we can do once, once those plants are in the ground. Second to that, we had a tremendous amount of black shank last year. So I think growers really need to be strategic in, again, variety selection. A lot of them have already, you know, made those decisions. They made them two or three months ago. But then being strategic about where they put those varieties. So if you know you've got a field with a history of black shank, weather's going to drive a lot of what we see at the end of the season and putting some of our better, more resistant varieties in those fields is, is really what we need to do. Um, you know, going beyond that, I've always been a big proponent of including a fungicide in the transplant water. We're putting those products right there in the root ball. And it's like we start with good protection from day one. Uh, and then looking forward, what kind of growing season are we having? Is it is it one that's fairly dry or is it fairly wet, you know, pre-layby? If it's a fairly wet growing season before layby, that really sets us up to have a pretty bad black shank problem as we get into the middle and latter part of the growing season. So then it's making decisions about, well, what kind of fungicides or do I need to apply a fungicide after transplanting. And we're fortunate that we do have some options with uh, Ritamil and some other generic Ritamil products and even Presidio uh, with Fluopicolide to make a soil application that can be effective. So again, for me right now, it's tomato spotted wilt virus number one, and then we move forward and start to, to, think, of, to think about uh, black shank management. Is there anything we didn't cover that you think we should talk about uh, before we uh, wrap this thing up? <laughs> The one thing that I would think about, Jacob, you know, we've we've had over the last probably five growing seasons, we've really struggled to manage target spot, you know, which is one disease that we've frankly been able to manage pretty well historically, uh, particularly once we were given access to azoxystrobin uh, as a as a foliar fungicide. Again, over the last four or five years, we've seen places that have just been absolutely decimated by target spot. I will say that the one exception to that was last year, you know, of course, we put out some target spot research trials and, you know, it was really hard to find a significant amount of target spot pressure, but that was really driven by the growing season we had. It was largely very, very warm and dry all season. Uh, so I think that really helped suppress in a natural way uh, the disease spread and the inoculum that was out there. But again, I think it's in our growers' best interest to be proactive with target spot management. You know, my line of thinking on target spot management has definitely evolved over the last 10 years or so. And I now think that it's, again, advantageous for a grower to strongly consider a foliar fungicide application around layby. Again, you got a smaller plant. It's typically around layby that we start to see some of these wet conditions and that leaf expansion with the soil coverage, where you've got a lot of leaf surface that these uh, target spot inoculum can can splash onto. 
And again, I think if we can, you know, start with a good application at lay-by, um, you know, that hopefully is going to set us up for a little bit better time managing that disease later in the growing season. One more thing before we leave, uh, Dr. Van. I know for a while now we have not had a pathologist. So is there any movement on getting a pathologist for tobacco? Sure. That that, that may be the most important topic we talk about today, Jacob. So I'm, I'm happy to announce that uh, we at NC State uh, are looking forward to the arrival of a new tobacco plant pathologist. Her name's Daisy Hernandez. Uh, she'll come to us from UC Davis, where she has experience working in uh, orchard crops and, and disease management and high value specialty crops. So I think that, you know, that experience moving into a high value field crop like tobacco will be invaluable. So Daisy will start on June 30th. And um, we've needed a field crop pathologist and, and tobacco plant pathologist for a while. So we're very excited to have her on board and, and look forward to a lot of good work and interaction with her. Uh, she starts her career and builds her program and starts to work throughout our extension network. Daisy will work on tobacco, corn, and cotton. So I think we'll have a good overlap there that, that'll be manageable. Well, we certainly appreciate your time today, Dr. Van. Well, thank you, Jacob. As always, it was a pleasure joining you. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to your local extension office and they'll be happy to help you. If you have questions you'd like us to ask on the next CropSense podcast, be sure to email us and let us know. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. And as always, thanks for listening to CropSense. Because if it isn't making money, it isn't making sense.